and welcome to the Thinking Not Podcast. Today, we're going to be airing the second part of our imposter syndrome episode. But before we do, I wanted to give a quick update on our Uvalde special episode from last week. First, thanks to all who have provided some feedback. I've tried to reply to most of you, but am a little bit behind on a few communications. I did want to provide, however, a little bit of additional information that other listeners have shared with me as I continue to explore ways for us to help. In addition to the organizations and movements that I mentioned in the Uvalde podcast, listeners have shared two others that I wanted to pass along. Everytown.org, that's Everytown. Org and Moms Demand Action are two groups that are doing good things. As with any of these, you need to perform your own due diligence to see if the organizations share your values and that they have the transparency around the money that you donate. For what it's worth, I've joined both of these organizations, and Moms Demand Action recently had a community awareness day in my area, and they continue to organize, educate, and push for gun reform. The amount of pressure that people are exerting on their congressional representatives seems to be helping. There's some dialogue going on that may may bear some fruit. And there have been lawmakers from several gun-strong states who have indicated that the calls they've been receiving are changing their mind. It's promising, but we need to hold them accountable to their actions as well as to their public comments. There is one small ray of hope for some progress here, though, so please, please keep it up. Call your senators and representatives and tell them how you feel. Be specific about what you want. I'll continue to provide important updates on this issue uh, in the weeks ahead. Now, let's pick up where we left off with part two of Would I Lie to You, our episode on imposter syndrome. The Thinking Knot is a podcast developed to help those who are trying to become better, a little bit better today than yesterday. It is an honest dialogue about the real-life challenges we each encounter as intention meets obstacle in the course of an every day. In our conversation, we weigh rational thought against our gut feeling of what is right, and we forge a path together using what is in our hearts, if we can all just awaken and get into rhythm with that beat. Thanks for joining today's discussion. I'm going to take it back to the corporate world for just a minute because... As long as you want. Well, um... There is this very interesting concept in, and I've mentioned this book on the podcast before, but Company of Giants by John Amici and about corporate culture. And he's got a small part of one chapter where he talks a little bit about imposter syndrome. And his take on it is different than some things that I've I've heard in the past. And so I thought I would share it because he says that imposter syndrome is actually built into today's corporate culture. It's part of today's corporate culture. He thinks that uh, while sometimes it is an individual pathology like you're talking about where it 
is starts in childhood and, and you know grows from there. He says it's much more commonly a response to this highly pressurized environment that we're in in the workplace and, and also frankly in society where we're competing for likes and upvotes. So he kind of downplays that role of parents in the home and he doesn't eliminate it. He's a psychologist. He understands that um, we are formed gradually over the course of our life, but importantly, when we are young. But he highlights that that high stakes, pressure packed workplace creates a feeling of never being good enough. And he actually takes it a step further, which is where I found it even more intriguing by identifying the homogeny at the top of corporate structure, the CEO office, you know, largely white, straight, autocratic, dominant in their relationships, fixed in their their thinking because they believe that that's what the position requires of them, that they have to be the final arbiter you know, I thought about that and, and realized that it's a statement that I uh, have, in my experience, found to be largely true, but also self, self-representative, self right? I've been a part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been the, the, that part of the problem in my career. And he says that the, the problem that we're causing with that homogeny is that people see that they don't fit into this image of what it takes to lead an organization. They, If they aren't white, if they're gay, if they have a more nuanced or modern approach to how to solve problems or how to make decisions, that automatically makes them feel like they don't belong because it doesn't fit the the mold. So the people that we actually in corporate world that we need in leadership positions, the people who are coming along and who are more open-minded, who are more open to cultural differences, the people who care more about the people they work with, we're actually at a critical point in their career, kind of cutting them off at the, the legs and saying, you don't fit. And then just one other thing that I found interesting was when imposter syndrome was coined back in 1971, I think, it was at that point attributed just to women. And it was a problem that women coming up in the workplace were going through. And since then, we've obviously discovered that it's not based on gender. And the point that that he makes, which I found interesting, is even people who are introverted can feel that same sense of not belonging if they if there's a very charismatic outgoing leader and they see that oh i don't fit that mold i'm not charismatic i'm not outgoing i I recharge back in my hotel room at the end of the day and not by being around people all the time. And so just found that it was it was uh, a different take than what I've heard about imposter syndrome in the past. The corporate culture is actually creating some of the problem. And not only that, but it's perpetuating 
the homogeny. It's perpetuating the the problem of people not feeling like they have a future in corporate America. I honestly have no opinion on uh, what's happening in, in corporate America. I know what's happening inside of human beings. The sense that that gentleman was pointing us towards a sense of not belonging and having to morph or pretend to care uh, in the same way and solve problems in the same style and uh, focus attention in the same priority uh, pecking order that the closer you get to the top, the more that's expected of you. You kind of like get groomed into compliance, so to speak. Like you get promoted because you fit. They think you're a team player. Yeah. You you are going to co-sign. The closer you get to the top, the more you're signing on board with what's going on at the top. So you become a victim of your own gradual acquiescence in order to so you pretend to get promoted. No, you pretend in order to be promoted. Yep. You can't pretend to get promoted, but you can saying, I think I'm going to get that job. And you plant the seed somewhere. Oh, they're interested. So there's a whole strategy involved with corporate that involves pretending on Machiavellian levels. And we call it strategizing, <laughs> politicking. Playing the game is another way that we phrase it. And every corporation has its own environment, culture, as it's called now, that you learn to play their game, their way. Now, you can be a, I'll use a sports analogy because it's common. Uh, if you're a really good ball player for uh, a team, uh, let's say it's basketball or baseball or whatever, but you're really good. Y you might not like the way that particular organization approaches the game of baseball or basketball. Your talent doesn't change. Your personality doesn't change, but your blend in that particular team environment isn't a good fit. And how do you know? Because you're benched a lot because <laughs> you don't play a lot. Cause, cause, cause. So you either have to start molding yourself more towards something that the coach will give playing time towards, or you want to be traded. Most people right now after COVID want to be traded because they don't like the way their team was treating them. I get it. They were treating us pretty poorly. However, Teams themselves seem to be organized in a way that uh, eventually you get to a level where all teams are kind of like the same. It's a lousy game. You may, you may be on the best team playing this game, and that doesn't mean you win the championship, but you have a really good time playing the game. But it's still a game, and you sense it's still a game. It makes you a living, and you pretend that you like playing this game, even though every time you play, you get hurt. 
and you have to practice like crazy and you have to be away from your family like crazy and all kinds of sacrifices are being made to play this game so that you can get some compensation money and that's the trade-off that we've been born into. We trade time for money. We trade talent and energy for money. And we think that more money means more talent or better game player. I would consider it's better game player because very talented people don't end up in the pros for luck, injury, choice, a host of reasons besides the ability to play the game really well. They just didn't want to play that game anymore. It was no fun anymore. Maybe it never was. But once they're in the game, it's really hard. It's really hard to not want to say, uh, well, I'm in it for a nickel. I might as well be in it for a dollar. I've been doing this for 10 years. I might as well do it until retirement. And then I can figure out what I really want to do. And 30 years from now, when I retire, I'm no more inclined to do anything new than I was 30 years ago when I said, well, I'll just get to retirement. I'll be so grooved in my patterns at that point in time when I retire. There's not enough places to go in the world that can fill the emptiness that was those 40 years where I was just playing a game and I got well compensated for it. But as a human concern, I go, gosh, that was a lot of time. I didn't really grow. I really didn't, didn't really live. I mean, I did. I mean, I put in the time, but I feel like I'm an imposter. At the end of all my trying in the corporate game, I feel like I'm empty still. Even if I have all the toys, even if I have all the, I still feel like that's what it was for. And I don't know, Cap. So is this a mindset issue? So in other words, not everybody feels that at the end of their career, it's been a waste or that they, there are CEOs I know that feel like they've done a lot of good for their employees and have helped a lot of people throughout their career. Have they asked the employees, the employees <laughs> feel the same way? That's the ticket. It's a two-way street, dude. Yeah, it is. Well, and, and the best CEOs, of course, are getting feedback regularly. Okay. And so they can perhaps not feel like an imposter. So we're talking about what makes me feel like an imposter. So if I have genuinely and honestly done my best and didn't lie, didn't pretend, treated my, my employees and this whole business of this game of this corporate business, treated it humanely and fairly, that's a huge accomplishment for your life, then yes, there's nothing to feel like you're an imposter about or that you pretended to care. You did care. And if you cared about the people that you did a project with, good for you. And the project went the way it went, 
Maybe it went swimmingly. Maybe you're Bill Gates of Microsoft. It just went swimmingly. You caught a wave and wrote it big. Still are a man, still are a person. Underneath all of those affluent opportunities, who are you? What do you care about? And where are you being an imposter? I can be an imposter with billions of dollars, pretending I give a darn about everyone else when I'm just giving away money so people like me because I'm so tired of people just using me for my money. So I just start giving it away, hoping they, you know, don't just like me for my money. But how will I ever know? So I'm an imposter even if I'm successful. Are they looking at me because I'm a good human being? Or are they looking at me because I'm Daddy Warbucks? And how would I know? I'd have to be able to know what I feel. I've been running from my feelings a lot of times, and that's the imposter syndrome again. So it shows up everywhere on the corporate career path. Where am I pretending? Where am I posing? Where am I playing a game as opposed to where am I being honest? Where am I being real? Where am I being caring? If I guide my behavior in the corporate world with those three things, I will have a very good corporate experience. It won't be horrible. If I'm playing the corporate game just to play the corporate game, it'll feel as meaningless as as it is. So it's always about caring. It's always about being honest. And it's always about not pretending to be something you're not. Can I go to the Hippocratic Oath? Can you go to the Hippocratic Oath? Sure. Okay. The Hippocratic Oath, when you boil it down to uh, a couple simple words, is above all else, do no harm. Mm -hmm. We kind of know what that means. Google thought it did. That was... It's motto as well. Agreed. So the question for me and for you here is, I think that's a hypocritical oath. Because I don't know what harm is when I'm practicing medicine. It says, above all else, do no harm. And I'm looking at you and I don't know what's wrong, why you're sick. So I'll go, well, I can't do anything. For all I know, I'm going to hurt you worse than you're already hurting. What changes that is that you look at me and say, I believe that you know what's going to help me more than I know what's going to help me. And so you give me permission. When you come and say, hey, I've got this going on? And do you have any experience with this? And I say, well, I've seen this before. Uh, it may not be exactly what you have, but I've seen this before. And this seemed to work for that person. And that's called the practice of medicine. But I cannot honestly say that above all else, I'm not going to harm you. My intention is not to harm you. My intention is to honestly tell you what I think may help or what I've seen help before. I cannot promise you 
what it'll do with you. You have to be willing to say, well, I have to try something because I don't want to be like this. Mm -hmm. So as a person who would like to help somebody who's hurting, as I attempt to help, I may hurt you. I may have to harm you in order to heal you. So my oath, above all else, do no harm, is really like, all right, I won't hurt you unless I have to. But I'll hurt you if it helps you. But we never say that. So when somebody hurts us, as they attempt to help us, we are surprised. Like, hey, 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 you were supposed to help me feel better. You weren't supposed to make me feel worse. That hurts worse, not better. You didn't tell me that setting that bone was going to nearly kill me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Prime example. You didn't tell me that straightening this thing out was going to hurt worse than I when I broke it. But it does. But if I, as your doctor, tell you that in advance, you may not want to go through that pain a second time. You may not. And that's your choice. Except that means you're not going to run, walk, or without certain consequences. You won't. But if you want to heal, you have to allow that there may be some additional pain involved in order to get to the healing that's necessary. If you don't want it, the doctor can't force it. That's not a doctor. Doctor tells you, I think this will help. Do you believe it? Or do you think I'm lying to you? If you think I'm lying, you will not do what it is I'm asking you or suggesting you try. So you take this huge leap of faith and say, if you believe it, I believe it. And when you feel better, you tell me I must know what I was talking about. And I want to be able to look at you and say, I think I got lucky. I think we took a chance together. And this time, wow, the results were excellent. I'm so happy for us both. Now, there's somebody's coming in right behind you. And guess what? I'm going to have to take another lucky guess as to what might help and not hurt more. So it's me not knowing is where I need to stay. I have to be willing to try. My intention is not to harm. But sometimes it's going to hurt before it heals because you got to get down to what really matters. That's why I got down to the initial imposter syndrome starts way, 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 way earlier than the corporate environment. We've grooved ourselves emotionally and psychologically to be prepared to dodge the consequences of our mistakes. That is me being an imposter. When I own my mistakes and I'm willing to say, yep, I did it. What does it cost? I, or how can I work this off? Or how can I make it right? How can I own it 
and be true to you and not lie to you, my self-esteem and my self-respect remain as intact as ever. The minute I lie to you, I am the imposter I always never wanted to be. That's why I'm honest. Because I, I I make an honest mistake. I'll tell you. like, <laughs> yeah. But I won't lie to you and say, I didn't do that. I'll say, this is what I was thinking might happen. And I thought it was going to be better than it ended up being. And I can see where I should have or could have and will next time. All of that is about me learning and caring. Not about me being a bad intended malicious individual. I'm just as limited and as willing to try as you. There's no pretending about that. I can't feel like I'm not caring when I really care. So I have to ask myself, do I really care? And if the answer is yes, then no one can tell me I'm an imposter. I stand on that. It's who I am. It's what I do. It's what I'll try. So it sounds like you believe that all of the challenges that come with imposter syndrome start with us being untruthful, perhaps to ourselves, but to others as well. Yes. Yes. Here's the untruth. Um, that I can tell myself, that lamp's not important. Well, that lamp that I broke is not important to me. But then by extension, I'm telling myself, then it shouldn't be important to anyone else. And when they treat that lamp like it's important to them, and it's not important to me, I have to pretend that I cared about the lamp. What I really care about is why are they so mad? Nobody talks about that. Why are they so mad? So I pretend that it's about the lamp, but I feel like it's about me. I feel like I was bad or I broke some trust or something, some behavioral norm that should never be violated. I should never break anything unintentionally. Well, that's the only time I break something. Unless I get to be an adult or Johnny Depp, I don't know. So, Charlie, the when you are talking to people who have developed a pattern of avoiding honesty because of the pain. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you work with them on later in life? So many behaviors become habits almost unwillingly or unwittingly. We don't. So how do you, what do you do with these people to help them kind of break that, that habit of um, choosing their ego over the truth. And I'm glad you, it's a great question. That's part of my comprehensive 
awareness that I want to ask people, well, what are you really feeling? Don't, don't tell me what you were thinking. What were you really feeling in that moment? Or what are you really feeling now about that moment? Not what you thought you should feel, not what you wanted to feel, not what they wanted you to feel. What are you feeling? And when I ask that question, after I've stripped away all their, you know, they gave me a great big song and dance, the whole story, they gave me the whole context and how right they were. I listened to it all and I agree, boy, that sure sounds like they, uh, they misunderstood you. But what were you really feeling as you noticed that they misunderstood you? And a lot of times I get crickets. I get silence. Like, what do you mean? What was I really feeling? Yeah. Well, yeah, we're used to what we're thinking, not what we're feeling. Yes. Right. So, so when I see that deer in the headlights look about their feelings, I know exactly where they're at. I know that they don't know what they're really feeling. And that's where the imposter is. I don't know what I'm really feeling, but I have to tell people I'm feeling something because everybody asks me, what are you feeling? And nobody really cares to dig past my pretend response or my canned response, as I like to say, my politically correct response. Nobody wants to go past that into the real humanity of me. Like, what am I really feeling? Not what I think I should be feeling or what somebody told me or what I read or what, what am I feeling? And I can't explore that on my own. Because I have filters and confirmation biases and patterns that are all so grooved in there that I wouldn't recognize a true feeling from a false one. Unless somebody said, but remember when you said this over there? Was that anything like that? Does that relate? So somebody else gives me some context, a little point of reference, a little way to focus, a little. Little, I, but when somebody loves me enough just to lean into helping me find out what I'm feeling, I feel like I can go a little deeper with myself because it's safe. And when I go a little deeper with myself, self, I, I, I can get to a place where I don't know much about what I'm actually saying here because I've never really talked about this on this level before, but it feels like, okay, this is okay, right? I'm not wrong, right? They tell me that all the time. They ask me, am I wrong? It's like, no, it's what you're feeling. How can it be wrong? If you told me this, this, uh, this chocolate tastes bitter to you, I can't say, well, we got to fix your tongue. <laughs> well, okay. It's not how it struck my palate, but interesting. All of that is allowing you to be different for me without being a threat to me. You having a different reaction to a moment 
isn't negating my reaction to the moment, only if I'm insecure about my reaction and don't know how I should feel. Do I look at what you say you feel and go, well, I don't feel that. You shouldn't feel that either. So I get more concerned about what you're feeling because I don't know what I'm feeling. And then you're like, well, why are you interested in, you're not even looking at what you're feeling. So in this imposter moment, you're pretending to know what you think you know what you're feeling and you're pretending to think you know what I'm feeling. Double imposter. And we are. <laughs> it's, it, it, and, and it gets so, so complicated so fast. It, exponentially, the, uh, the opportunity for confusion is intense. And that's why I think that pace, the pace of our lives absolutely is uh, one of the factors that is contributing to the shallowness of our lives. We are not taking care to take time to let each other soften up a little bit and open up a little bit more and nuances with curiosity as opposed to, don't get it wrong, don't do that, oh, you should have thought about that, or you could stop. The minute I want to explore something is the minute I feel like I'm opened up to cross-examination. That's not exploring something. That's being under the spotlight of your interrogation. I, I close up. I confess. I'll tell you where the troops are. I'll tell you anything you want to know. Just stop. Stop. Or I go, get off my back. So I either cave in and feel like I'm untrue to myself, imposter again, or I bow up and knock you down. And that's not who I want to be either. So I feel like, ah, I pretended to be something I wasn't, like a bully. Or like, overly confident. So let's not say a bully. Let's just say, I'm really sure. And in my really sureness, I disregard your feelings because mm -hmm. I'm really sure that my feelings are more important than your feelings. I'm not really ever sure about that. So the place of equality is the place where nobody's posing or pretending. We're just trying to be honest. And that's assuming positive intent. Mm -hmm. I want to be honest. We don't have that anymore. We don't believe anybody really wants to be honest with us anymore. But I do. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not really valued in our, in our culture and, you know, it's costly you, in our culture. Yeah. And you talk a lot about extending an olive branch to people, extending a hand of kindness as a means of opening people up and having some real conversations. But I don't, I don't see that very much. I honestly don't see that in our culture very much. And I'm not, I am at a loss for how to get there. Uh, although I shared something with you before we started today about how 
an act of kindness can perhaps start some of those conversations. So, so, you know, your own answer is what I want to express to you right here. You gave me an example before we started recording, I think of a beautiful, and you said, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to be bragging on myself. It's just like, you're not bragging. You told me a beautiful moment in your life where you stepped into goodness and goodness opened up even further. Like goodness gave back to you. Yes. Which is the nature of goodness. So you think you're extending an olive branch. Well, that means you were fighting to begin with. Yeah, bad choice of words. Well, it's an accurate choice of words. I think me extending a kindness is me like, all right, I know you're probably going to take advantage of me. And I'm like, I'm extending this because this is who I am. If you take it and don't give me anything back, this wasn't transactional. Just take this. I open the door for you. You don't have to say anything. I don't want to open the door for you. And if you stand there waiting for me to open the door for you, we're both going to stand there for a long time. But if I open the door because that's who and how I want to be in that moment and you breeze by, it has nothing to do with me. I just opened the door for a random stranger who just was too busy with what they're doing. And I don't take that personally. I just, there it is. And I get to be who I am and you didn't take anything from me. I just did what I wanted and there you were and you did what you wanted and I'm okay. But when I think, oh, that shouldn't have happened, then you're off your merry way in your merry oblivious way. And I am stuck wondering what's wrong with humans. So who's suffering? Yeah. So that's why I have to give freely, like with no expectation of return. Just give, just give. And then I'm free. If I give it freely with no strings, then I'm not stuck with strings either. There's no strings attached to what I just did. I just did it. Why? I don't need to tell you why. I care. Does that make any sense to you? Maybe not. Do you need it to make sense or do you just want to say, he cares? Hmm. What's wrong with him? (laughs) What's wrong with him that he hasn't learned? You just can't care like that because people will take advantage of you. And I go, yep. Yes, they do. And your point is. That's uh, that's it's take advantage. Go ahead. It's okay. Before we end today, I want to ask you a question that's been on our on my mind during our conversation, which is I think there are people who have been brought up in well-parented, good environments who have achieved a lot in their young academic careers, but still feel like they're not good enough, that they either don't deserve the success or, you know, a lot of the uh, psychological literature that's written about imposter syndrome talks about this cycle where you have a task and you either procrastinate 
or you work your butt off on that task and then you finish it and the procrastinator thinks, oh, well, I was lucky that I got that done. The hard worker thinks, oh, well, as long as I work hard on every single thing, work my butt off harder than anybody, then I'll be successful. And then it goes into this cycle where they get the next next task. And it's this self-perpetuating thing where they're telling themselves, well, I know I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I've got to outwork everybody else. Or they think, you know, they procrastinate because they think that they're not good enough. And so they put it off because they don't want to fail. And then when they actually do it and they're successful with it, they think, oh, well, that was just luck. So is it your belief that there, that those people were still brought up in an environment where they were forced in some way to not be honest with themselves? Or do you think that the environment uh, had such high expectations that they had to start lying to themselves because they could never meet the expectations of their parents or the school or the people they were competing with for grades or, or whatever. Tell me, you're, you're making it sound like it all started with a reaction to potential punishment or loss of conditional love or, or something else. Do you come across people who just have this drive that and they're constantly competing with themselves. My uh, experience with the human development is that uh, when you start giving uh, goal-oriented uh, tasks, that uh, you can objectively, quote unquote, whatever that means, uh, tick off a box. Like you, you did uh, X amount of reps, you ate X amount of calories, you did X amount of whatever, whatever you can define objectively as uh, accomplished. And that's what gets rewarded. That's what gets recognized. That's what gets uh, the kudos, the attaboys, call them what you will. Um, that becomes the baseline measure of... Uh, the approval and validation you're looking for. If that validation is tied only to accomplishments and not efforts, then the uh, orientation is on the accomplishment, the achievement. If the mm -hmm. achievement is met, if the goal is met, that is 100% success. Even if you killed yourself getting there or sacrificed the, the, the meaningful parts of your life in order to get to this meaningless part of your life. Because in the end, nobody says, I wish I had spent more time in the office. Unless you're the CEO and even then you say, I wish I hadn't. Yes. <laughs> okay. So we all know this. We all know that at the end of our days, we are not wishing for more time in the office. 
And yet every day we try to spend a little bit more time in the office just getting one more thing done. That is an imposter because I'm pretending that what I'm doing I need to do today, even though at the end I know it's not going to amount to anything that matters. So I'm pretending to care about this job and this goal and this one achievement. And I know that all along the way, just to accomplish that, I'm giving up all the other things I really think are meaningful. That I wish I had more time for. I wish I didn't have to. So I'm in conflict with spending as much time and energy as I do on something that I know I really don't care about and spending so little time and energy on something that, on things I, I really do care about and I don't have any time for. So I feel out of place. Not belonging is the key to feeling like an imposter. When I don't belong where I am in the moment, and I have to pretend that I do because I can't admit that I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. I can't admit that. Because then I'd have to quit or I'd have to yep. leave or yep. I'd, ha- I'd have to take an action. So I have to lie to myself that I'm doing this for a bigger, better good. I'm doing this for my kids' sake. I'm doing Well, this- yeah, so, yes. There's, so there's always trade-offs. That's what the justification is, but it's, I know underneath all that, that I'm just pretending. And and that's, I I, I like, I feel like I'm pretending to have a life, but I feel like I don't. And I, I have known people that work to be able to have a life. So they work so they can take their family on a trip to Europe or they work. So, you know, whatever hobbies they have, they can enjoy. And there are, there are. Okay. There are success stories out there. I get it. It's not all misery, but there is a sufficient amount of uh, percentage of our population that has all of the accoutrements of uh, what should be happiness and none of the happiness that go along with the accoutrements that, that that should be produced. So that disconnect is the imposter syndrome. I'm rich, I should be happy, I'm not. I'm this and I should be satisfied and I'm not. I'm that and I should be this and I'm not. So I'm wherever I am, I still not really feeling like I belong or deserve or understand. So always out of place, pretending to want to fit in somewhere. And is it your thesis that we as a culture are ignoring the, let me call it the moral imperative that we're at odds with this moral imperative that we should care be kinder. I wish I could tell you it was an imperative. It, it, I feel like it's a, a, a choice that we have been conditioned away from because it uh, it's an inconvenient, inefficient element in human endeavors. 
to get bogged down with concerns about feelings or even cares about the environment. When I start getting feelings involved, efficiency goes off the charts. I mean, it just falls. It just, however, what goes up is satisfaction and productivity. It's not directly like, like the minute you start caring, everything skyrockets up in, uh, you know, productivity and satisfaction. It is a bell uh, dip because first efficiency falls, uh, goes away. Everything becomes, uh, we can't meet a deadline because so-and-so's got a feeling. Okay. But once you get feeling straightened out, then productivity and satisfaction show up. And then goals aren't like wishful thinking. They're like, they're, they're organically coming from the people who care and who have straightened out. They want to be there. And so they're coming up with initiatives and ideas and you know what else is and all these other things that come because we cared first about the people. Yeah. Well, and uh, so this is the last time I'm going to mention it, but this this book that I have mentioned, this is his really core concept is that we need to be creating leaders who have that, I don't want to call it a moral sense, but who have that compass that points towards kindness and caring and who are interested in being true to themselves and creating a company that is aligned with those true values that they have. And this guy, um, you know, you had, you used a sports metaphor before, mm-hmm. uh, about, um, the, the game and the game plan. And this is a guy who, uh, grew up with a single mother in the UK and decided at a young age that he was going to be an NBA star, a guy in Britain, Decides he's going to be an NBA star. Played 12 years, I think, in the NBA before coming out as gay. Um, Earned his psychology degree and went on and started helping people with uh, culture and and those types of things. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a guy who understands what it means to not belong in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and the impact that that sense can have on people. So it it really is a, a fascinating read and I think um, aligns with what you were just saying about really understanding the values that matter and building a company. I suppose the same is true in building a relationship or anything else, but building uh, something that is aligned with those, those core values and, and beliefs. So, Currently, we have no, to my awareness, there, there may be private institutions that foster uh, education along these lines. Uh, education, the character, uh, not just the brain. So uh, without, again, 
forcing choices. Like there are people who try to educate your character in a certain direction under certain behavioral norms. That's different than um, giving you a moral compass as opposed to commandments. Right. Mm -hmm. Because my choices in my life, if I'm doing it from a rule book, I'm going to misapply the rules because I'm going to be thinking about them. But if I'm doing it from a place where I have been instructed as to how to handle uncertainty, what to look for um, in in a moment that is connective as opposed to critical, that is uh, inviting and including as opposed to disenfranchising and excluding. Mm -hmm. So those are things that when I have uh, in my formative youths, my time, been uh, taught those skills and introduced and then given examples, like in playtime, examples, how to cooperate, collaborate, uh, communicate, to debrief after a bullying episode or a inappropriate behavior or a interesting behavior, whatever you want to call it. You, you sit down as any of everyone who's involved talk about what were you feeling? What did you see? What did you? And if it takes 15 minutes or an hour and I don't learn two plus two in that hour, but I learn how to communicate with a group of, of my peers in a way that makes me feel better about going to school, two puts two will come along soon enough. But if I have these skill sets that I'm practicing every day, then I can, I can take all of that out into the corporate world and, and the game that I play is not going to be a game. It's going to be vocation of sorts, uh, an extension of what I've learned, how to cooperate, collaborate, and include, and have fun. That, that I, 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 who wouldn't want that? But what we're getting instead is everybody's just is taught how to grab for theirs, protect theirs, and uh, if you're nice, maybe you'll share, but you don't have to. But, you know, Pretend that you share, like, you give them the toys you don't really care about. That's how we teach them to share. Yeah. Well, this conversation has reminded me of one of the, uh, the most fascinating tenets of magic. And uh, it is this. Decent magicians will lie to you to get you to believe something. The very best magicians get you to lie to yourself. Mm. Mm. All right, Charlie. Thank you for the conversation today. As always, thank it you has too, been friend. it has been instructive. Well, I hope it was uh, it was mutually instructive. I learned lots of things about corporations. I had no idea. And probably don't care. <laughs> I'm not taking them with me. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Mm. 
Thanks for joining us for today's discussion. If you haven't figured this out by now, we love talking to each other. And we hope you get something out of the listen. We really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us and welcome your feedback. And you can provide that feedback on either Charlie's site at owningourselves.com or on my site, liveforwonder.com. We do have a website coming for The Thinking Knot where we can gather your feedback in a more structured way and we'll let you know as soon as that's ready. If you know people out there who can use some help working through imposter syndrome who, or who just need some help to unknot themselves, please share this podcast with them and follow or subscribe, rate, and review The Thinking Knot so others know to give it a try. Thanks again for listening. We hope your journey is filled with wonder and that every day you find time to celebrate your successes. Go ahead, give yourself a pat on the back and as always, be good to each other and don't forget to be good to yourself.